everyone, Mike Nelson. This is Like Trees Walking with a special edition. I mean, oh, when I say so special, special. <laughs> Dave, is this special or not? This is um, this is like the church lady saying, "Isn't that special?" Like, they, the, <laughs> is it that special? The great, wow, the great Dana Carvey. No, this is this is a very very special episode. We've had. We've done more than our fair share of special episodes tonight on a very special Like Trees Walking, but we are in the midst of a uh, a, a quarantine of our entire country. I don't know. I mean, uh, things have gotten a little crazy since we last recorded, and so um, we figured, you know, we need to we need to speak to our people and right. to each other, and so we got someone on the horn. Uh, who who who's done a lot of thinking and writing about this and so this is a huge get for us yes and this is uh, a, a gentleman from uh he i think is now living in hong kong yes i mean i, I don't think it i know that because he said <laughs> that um, he's originally from and, kentucky though mike so he's yeah we should have told yeah, him he's, you're a colonel but whatever yeah i don't know he seemed like he was he, he was a pretty serious dude this he, is serious stuff that we're talking yeah. about we like to keep it light here. This gentleman, yeah, he didn't have a lot of time for the lightness because no. he's dealing with a lot of important stuff, as we all are, and that's appropriate, and that's good. So, uh, yeah, so tell them what we're going to talk about or right. what we did talk about because yeah. this happened already. Yeah, so so we figured let's talk to someone who's, um, you know, has some ex- some some relevant expertise in the field um, regarding human populations and, and specifically how that can relate to disasters or infectious disease. And someone who's also a Christian, um, who's thought about this from a, um, you know, a theological and then a, a discipleship perspective as well. You know, what does it mean to think Christianly and, and live as a follower of Christ in a time of, of pandemic? This is not the church's first rodeo. Um, but for some of us, particularly those of, in, of us in America, this is our first rodeo in facing something like this um, as as uh, followers of Jesus. And so Lyman has done some really great thinking about this, um, you know, from a historical and a, and a theological perspective. And he's lived it on the ground, just living in Hong Kong, where, um, you know, they, they dealt with the SARS outbreak. He wasn't there that for that then, but just that that has kind of shaped the public response. And so he's living in a society that, you know, a couple months before ours um, had to face uh, face the threat of COVID-19 and how the, the society has responded, how the church has responded, um, what this means. And so it's a really, for me, it was just a really fascinating um, conversation. And so uh, he... Did uh, you say his full name and give his... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Lyman, R- Lyman Stone. Is yes. his name okay. Lyman? Yeah, I did not say his name. So his name is Lyman Stone. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, he is. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy uh, to talk to. And so I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview, Mike. What What do you have to say? Yeah. So uh, yeah, let's just uh, let it roll. It speaks for itself for the most part. There's a. He is in Hong Kong. He's speaking through a computer. So our, you know, our standards of sound, you know, lower them slightly. It's fine. I think there's a few dropouts. Yeah, but very uh, minimal. I think. Yeah. Also, take note of the fact that he did not appreciate my Clement the Sixth joke. No, he that's was what I'm not. Still burning about. <laughs> that was, no. That's your. I'm um, kidding. That's I'm your. Kidding. That's your battle toads joke. That's my only takeaway. From this. <laughs> like how... No, I'm kidding. This is a fascinating <laughs> interview, and we'll just let it stand and. Uh, Thank you for listening. This is uh, this is like trees walking. Dave and I will sign off, though you'll hear our voices in just a second. Yep. So, uh, Dave.
Dave, any final words? No, my my final words are just that um, you know, we're we're in this um, you know, for some people these are it's disorienting. I you know, uh, I don't want to say unprecedented because there are precedents to this. Um, but within our lifetimes and so if you're scared, um, you know, I hope that you find uh I hope that you find solace, comfort and peace. We're not offering, you know, false hope or uh easy solutions, but we are offering um, this, we are proclaiming still that God is still God and the good news is still good. And, um, you know, we're still in this together. And so, uh, especially here at Like Trees Walking, Mike and I, um, we want to be edifying and encouraging and um, a voice of lightness and of soberness in this time. And so that's our commitment to our audience. Amen to that. So here we go. Here's uh, Lyman. It's Lyman Stone, right? Lyman Stone, yep. yep. Lyman R. Stone. Here we yep. go. Enjoy. Make right. a professional day. Make an intro. <laughs> All right. Uh, on the line with us now from Hong Kong uh, is Lyman Stone. And uh, Lyman is a, he'll tell us a little more, more about himself in a second here, but uh, you're, 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 you're a demographer. Is that an apt description of, of what you do? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So Lyman is a demographer um, and, uh, and his wife uh, serves um, the, the Lutheran uh, mission in Hong Kong. And so, uh, Lyman, um, uh, is an active, uh, Twitter personality, I would say in the sense of shows a, a, a broad interest in many, many things, writes on them. Uh, uh, he would be firmly on our side on the have children, kids are good, uh, uh, conversation that we had a, a little while ago. And so, but, um, he has kind of an interesting perspective having been, you know, both a demographer and living in a country that's had to face, um, uh, had to face the coronavirus uh, much sooner than our own and has to respond to it and being active in the church there. So I guess, Lyman, that's my like intro to you, but w- like, who are you and why should anyone listen to you about this? Because I did not say infectious disease specialist or epidemiologist or, you know, respiratory, uh, you know, doctor. So um, yeah, that's the balls. I've hit the ball over into your court. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, in general, people should listen to uh, epidemiologists and infectious disease ex- experts and lung doctors and these things, right? The, these folks know what they're talking about uh, when they're talking about uh, COVID, um, this, uh, this novel disease, right? Um, however, uh, at the same time, um, those folks tend to speak a specific language. Uh, they tend to speak doctor. Um, which is sort of an unusual and strange language uh, that often requires a translator. Um, so my work, I am a demographer. I, uh, I have, uh, own a population consulting firm called Demographic Intelligence. We basically give advice to corporations and governments whenever they want to know how many people are going to live in a certain place or people of a certain kind will live in a certain place in the future. So population forecasting is my job, which means when a hurricane hits, and a company wants to know, you know, how many people are going to be remaining there to sell, um, I don't know, tractor trailers to. Uh, that's my work. Or if a government needs to know um, how a tornado is going to impact their their school enrollments in the next year, um, or if uh, um, a diaper company wants to know how many how many babies are going to be born, um, this is the kind of thing that I do. Which means. A lot of my work, while it's not epidemiology per se, it is, um, uh, I am immersed in a lot of that literature and in a very practical sense. Um, my concern is not always so much understanding how things are the way they are, but simply 
uh, what do they tell us about the future? Okay. So that is, that's my, that's my, uh, that's how I put food on the table. Uh huh. And so, um, you know, here in, in the States and, um, Mike and I are in the, in the twin cities, um, you know, uh, more, we're much more West of the river in Minneapolis than St. Paul, but you know, our state's, uh, response. So, so far there's 54 confirmed cases, confirmed community transmission. And so, um, the government and local authorities have taken a series of, you know, escalating steps to the point where now at, as of 5 PM today, bars and restaurants are closed, you know, schools are ordered closed. Um, you know, ex- uh, there's obviously the president's recommendation of gathering in groups of less than 10 people for the next 15 days. Um, and so, you know, we've gone from a week ago, uh, you know, literally a week ago, uh, the eighth, um, at church, you know, me talking about, uh, Hey, we're not going to like, don't, you know, be think, think twice about shaking hands and it's okay if you don't want to, to like, Hey, now we're not having church per, you know, cause per the recommendations, less, more than 10 people for like the, I mean, who knows how long. Um, so this is a huge reaction uh, or not reaction, but response I'll say on, on behalf of the, the authorities and business and government school, all these things. So Lyman, do you think that's like a, um, I mean, and these are obviously have drastic consequences, economic consequences, um, which also have social health, uh, public health consequences too. Like, do you think that, uh, I mean, you know, what is your thoughts uh, from afar on what's what you've seen unrolling in the states, and as a you know, I mean, is this something? Are we taking it seriously enough? Is, is this appropriate reaction? I, mean, I don't know. What do you think? Um, the U.S. has not been taking it seriously enough for a while. Um, here in Hong Kong, we started the COVID started to make news here in late December and early January because this city was hit hard by, by SARS back in 2003. They lost several hundred people. There's a lot of sort of unresolved trauma around that. Um, and so when it looks like there might be a second, another, another SARS coming, um, people reacted very aggressively. They were very interested. And every time the government would try to say, Hey, it's not a big deal. Don't worry about it. People would just not listen to the government. There's no trust in the government here right now. Um, and so the population prepared itself. Even before the government took any action, people here were buying masks, making plans. They were, they were, they were fortifying themselves for what they assumed could be, a, could be a long slog and is turning out to be a, a more trench warfare than climactic battle. Um, so uh, there was an early response here. Um, because there was an early response here, Hong Kong has really done quite well for itself. We've had, I think, only four deaths um, in a city of 7. Point, I think 7.4 million people. Um, we've had uh, considerably fewer cases in total than Singapore has, um, which is a thing we like to brag about here. Yeah. Yeah. Hong Kong and Singaporeans are always rivals, so we're beating Singapore. That's as long as we're beating Singapore, everything's fine. Um, although they, they have they have fewer deaths than us, so there's some resentment there. Um, but uh, um, so the point is, you know, we've 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 responded pretty aggressively here. Social distancing here really practically began before we had any cases. Um, I when when my wife and I were going to the hospital um, to uh, um, to have our first child here um, in early January. Um, people were texting us, telling us, uh, you should try and get into a different hospital because there's, there's a case of the new pneumonia, um, uh, in, in that hospital, in one of the wards, you know, you won't be safe. 
And of course, we were fine. You know, they had the person quarantined and all this, but this was the narrative that before mm-hmm. there was any government awareness, before it was making sort of any mainstream news outside of China, um, people here were were telling us, avoid the hospitals, stay home, don't go out. Um, so social distancing began early, and so it's been highly effective. In America, on the other hand, social distancing has not begun early. It's hardly begun at all. Um, even now, recent data from OpenTable, the online reservation site, suggested the reservations are only down by like 40%, um, when they should be down 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, schools are not canceled in every state. There's, there's sc- there are schools where kids are still going to be going to school, um, where basic minimum level of sanity precautions are just not being taken. Um, you see bars and restaurants that people are still crowding in at. Um, churches, I strongly believe that churches should remain open essentially to the bitter end as long as, it all, as, all, as long as it is at all possible to do so. But you see churches that aren't taking people's temperature, that aren't uh, imposing hand sanitizer or hand washing at the door, that are, that are not pressuring people to wear masks um, because it's difficult. Because people won't comply, because it's embarrassing for the pastor to prevent his people from dying. Um, so, yeah, I, I think America has not prepared sufficiently. And as a result, it may be necessary to impose some draconian measures. Um, because culturally, morally, psychologically, Americans were just unwilling to believe that they were not invincible. And that they might need to bear some personal responsibility for and make some sacrifices uh, to combat a major infectious disease. So, um, what, like, so what has your experience been with, with the virus? And I mean, you know, what, what has daily life been? I mean, cause in America, it seems like it sort of was going on normal middle of last week, things got, you know, people, nerves started rising and then boom, all of a sudden it's like, well, now you're not going to like, you're not seeing anyone, uh, for, a few months, like you need to basically just chill, chill with your family for a few months. Right. So, um, this is how, this is how infectious disease works, right? There's an exponential spread. One case becomes two, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, except actually COVID, the, the basic reproduction rate is, is closer to three rather than two. So it's actually a faster growth than that. Um, so, uh, everything's normal. And then suddenly, uh, you start to get local transmission and any responsible public health a- agency will just cut everything off. Um, so this is the experience of epidemic disease is that to beat it, you have to, you have to kind of hit it hard, hit it early. Um, for us, that meant that life was really, really normal until suddenly school was canceled for four weeks and all of our friends canceled their dinner invites and, um, Church attendance fell from about 100 a week to, at the low point, 15 people. Um, uh, there was no one in the street. I mean, literally, we, we normally can step out of our house and we can see a McDonald's, a KFC, six or seven other businesses, lots of foot traffic, busy, busy pedestrian intersection, ghost town. Nobody was out there. Um, now, things have begun to return to normal here because local transmission in Hong Kong has basically stopped. Mm-hmm. We still have imported cases. Um, however, we just had a huge wave of imported cases, which means a lot of things have sort of scaled back again. We kind of had a week a week or two there where people said, oh, maybe we're through this. But now we just had to bail out of a birthday party for a friend um, and a couple other activities recently. 
um, because we, you know, we have another wave of imported cases. We all have to take it very, very seriously and respond. Um, so, uh, um, what is life like? Um, you never know until the day of. There was a party that we were doing, um, and then we kind of learned day of that there were some local cases that we needed to be aware of. So we changed plans. Um, every day you're checking to see is it okay to go out. Uh, every errand you're sort of weighing, do I really need this? And if you do need to go out, are you going to drop? You know, are you going to call an Uber, take public transit, or what are you going to do? We don't have a car. Most people don't have cars. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's a higher cognitive load. Every day you're waking up with new stresses, new worries. You kind of eye your your toilet paper while you're while you're sitting on your porcelain throne. You think how pieces do I need? <laughs> um, so that is a legitimate concern because that, that is one that has baffled me. Why that particular thing? Well, okay. So it's panic buying, right? People, it's not like people actually, so I can tell you here now we have like every store has like a 10 foot tall tower of toilet paper um, because they had a shortage. So they did a massive purchase to restock. The same thing's going to happen in America. In a couple of weeks, you're going to have a a massive tower of toilet paper and and whatever else you're out of. Masks continue to be a bit hard to come by, but here we have them. They're just expensive. You'll get the same place in America. Private enterprise is is an amazing thing. They ramp up production in response to demand. So Mm -hmm. as long as there's demand, they'll ramp up production. Um, The big worry is that people aren't going to buy the stuff, right? Is that that the companies are going to produce it and then they're going to put it in the stores and then nobody's going to buy it. And then they're going to stop producing it. And then they're going to lay off workers. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, there's always shortages. So here shortages came in waves. First it was bread. Then it was milk. Then it was rice. Then it was eggs. Then it was hand sanitizer. Then it was masks. Then it was toilet paper. Then it was masks again. Um, we've sort of just like, there's like rolling shortages. And so each week the news, you know, we'll have, Oh, this week there was a shortage of this, this commodity. So Could I in theory start my own panic by just buying all the creamed corn on the shelves. And then like, you know, like why it's just so bizarre that it's, it's yeah, toilet paper. Would, that's not my thought in the last days. Like, boy, oh boy, that's well, going to be a difficult. I can, say, I can say, you know, for us, we were very careful to ensure that we had enough, uh, diapers, right? Yeah. yeah you think sure. Life without toilet paper is is pretty nasty. Um, so, like, what people, what happens when people are preparing for disasters? They start to say, "What are the things that I need?" So they buy basic staples and um, and sanitary products that you really, really need. So it's actually not just toilet paper. You'll notice that, like, also women's sanitary products are probably off the mm-hmm. shelf. Um, so you get a, and then, you know, you get a couple other things that sort of just vanish, but like no one's out there buying toothbrushes, right? Um, because you're not going to need one in the next six weeks. I mean, yeah. you will, you'll brush your right. teeth, but you're not going to need a new one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You won't be going out as much. So maybe you won't need a toothbrush at all. Totally. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I haven't brushed my teeth yet today, to be honest with you. Um, I can and tell, so, Dave. I can tell. <laughs> through this, through the wire. Yes, yeah, Mike sir. and I, folks, we're not in the same room for the first time ever in recording this podcast. So that's yeah, we're being responsible. Yeah, we're being responsible. So Lyman, um, you know, th- uh, this is all very fascinating, and I would like love to stay on this track forever to ask you about this. Um, you're like living in the future in a certain sense, um, uh, you know, and um, but so 
I'm more interested though, like, cause you've offered a lot of reflections, um, you know, theologically on what does it mean to live as a Christian in the midst of a pandemic? And so uh, like, what are the responsibilities of a Christian in a pandemic? How should we think about being faithful followers of Jesus um, when this is happening? So uh, I'm a Lutheran, um, which means my, my, my first response is always to sort of go to my catechism and say, mm-hmm. does it have a section on pandemics? Um, and the answer is basically yes. Um, the Lutheran, the historic Lutheran confessions basically have like a manual for like pandemic response. Um, and it stems first from, uh, from uh, the fifth commandment, thou shalt not murder. I believe that's the sixth commandment, but um, we won't. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. That's like the, you know. The, the, no, no, the, you want to debate our number? No, no, no. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, yes, let's get take a big rabbit trail and do that. For a minute there, I thought that I had misnumbered. No, 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 no. Right. So I'm... the fifth commandment, thou shalt <laughs> Um, uh, What does this mean? Well, it means that we should fear and love God so that we... Um, not only don't murder our neighbor, but actually help got, help support and protect them in every physical need. Um, and so the elaboration on this um, tells us that, in fact, uh, if you see a neighbor's house burning and you don't help put water on it, uh, and assuming there's no fire department, then you've murdered them. Um, if, you, uh, if you dig a pit and fill it with spikes and someone walks into it, you've murdered them. Um, in the same way, Luther, in his essay, Whether Christians Should Flee the Plague, which he wrote during an outbreak of, of bubonic plague in Wittenberg, um, he says that if, if a man, knowing he is infected, um, should visit a neighbor's house and infect him, uh, then uh, not only should he be executed, um, but he should be excommunicated and then ex- ex- executed. Oh um, that is Luther saying, just like, send him straight to hell, um, right? So this is this is his take. Now I think that this might be a bit of overkill. Luther tends to be a bit extreme, um, although he all yeah he has interesting stuff to say about this. But um, but the general view is that uh, that we owe we are in fact our neighbor's keeper. Um, we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we would want our neighbor to protect us. And so we cooperate in social distancing and quarantine efforts and restrictions of this type as much as is practicable. We cooperate enthusiastically with the government. In fact, we should have a higher standard. We should be, we should be ensuring that we set an example for our society of how to love our neighbor, that is, how to um, practice effective social distancing. However, that is not our entire call. Christians are not simply called to sit on the couch and eat ice cream during a pandemic. Hmm. Um, right now, we're in a situation where hospitals can handle the problem. Um, in Hong Kong, we're very fortunate that we've had uh, a manageable number of infections. The U.S. right now, hospitals are not yet overwhelmed. But if you look in Italy or Iran or in China during the worst of it, hospitals were overwhelmed. Um, people were dying in their homes. People were dying in the street. Um, in this kind of situation, uh, Luther speaks about this as well in his essay, Whether, Whether Christians Flee the Plague. He says, you know, it would be well to have hospitals large enough to care for all the sick, but that's not the world we live in. So we have to care for our neighbors where they are. Don't let your neighbor die alone. Um, in fact, basic field medicine, that is breaking fevers, providing water, providing food when conscious, um, uh, these types of things can lower mortality for most diseases, and COVID is probably no exception. Um, so if your neighbor is ill and if the hospital is overwhelmed, 
um, then we should probably be caring for our neighbor. We should probably be physically caring for them. Go over and take care of them. Don't let them die alone. Um, particularly if they are, uh, if they are a Christian, ensuring that they receive communion before they die is something that is a great comfort to many believers. Um, so uh, ensuring that there's someone to pray with them, sing with them. Uh, these are important things. Christians should be preparing themselves emotionally, mentally, psychologically for the fact that if it gets really bad, our job is to go and sit with the dying. So far, most places in the world aren't there, but they may get there. Was Luther aware of uh, his, if he's doing that and he's making that, uh, you know, command to the faithful that they then be, could become infected? And then, you know, what does that mean for for the, those Christians going out further? And, you know, so, how, you know, how yes. do you balance those things? He was well aware of that. He says, um, he says, uh, if we should shirk our duty because of some small boils, and remember, he's talking about the bubonic plague here. So some small boils is like kind of a big deal. Um, uh, we're talking, you know, 20, 30% mortality rates in some cases for this disease he's talking about. He says, if you're afraid of some small boils, um, then clearly you don't believe in eternal salvation. Um, he says uh, um, that uh, death is death, however it may come. That is, yes, you should, you should wear a mask, you should wash your hands. And he talks actually about wearing protective clothing. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you should do everything you can to prevent infection. Um, at the same time, um, you can't let, you can't just ignore your neighbor. The fact that it is dangerous to climb it down into the spiky pit and pull someone out of it does not remove your obligation to do so. Mm -hmm. when, when the Good Samaritan stops on the highway to help the guy who's been beaten up, what, are the bandits gone? No, he sees a man beaten up. Your first conclusion would not be, it's safe to stop and slow myself down by picking this guy up. Yeah. No, there are still bandits in the area. Um, so now, could we infect others? Yes, absolutely. But if we're talking about a case where hospitals are overwhelmed and people are have no access to care and we have a significant rate of of non-medicalized death, then managing infection is sort of a, a very academic question at that point, because at that point we're talking about a situation where 70 or 80% of the population will be infected no matter what. So at this point, um, what we're really talking about is mitigating fatality rates. Um, so when we talk about diseases, our first stage is, contain <clears throat> is containment. We want to prevent it from like getting any local transmission. Once local transmission spreads, we want mitigation. That is, we want to prevent it from getting too bad. We want to slow it down. We want to, as we say, flatten the curve. So that's, that's what we're talking about when we say flatten the curve. But if we fail to flatten the curve, if we have huge infection, if we have um, especially non-medicalized death, that is people dying in their homes, um, then at that point, we switch to a model of care. We say, okay, mitigation's over, maximize care. Draft every single, and you can expect people who have any medical experience could be conscripted out of retirement. Um, the government has the ability to do that. Um, you would expect military deployments um, and you would expect uh, social organizations to be strongly encouraged to volunteer their time. Um, so in that situation, uh, Christians will definitely have an obligation. But even before then, 
Um, your elderly neighbors should not be going to the grocery store. You should be delivering them food. Mm-hmm. Um, people with kids out of school who still have who still still have to go to work, they need their kids taken care of. You should probably be arranging parent sharing and babysitting help. Um, people with um, mental illnesses, mental, emotional, and psychological illnesses, this period is going to be an extremely high suicide risk for them. Um, you probably need to be ensuring that they actually, that as, as much as social distancing is occurring, these people still actually need social contact or else they're mm-hmm. going to die. Um, so this is actually my concern. I understand the draconian measures setting a limit at 10, but there are public health ramifications of social distancing itself. People not getting checked on, elderly people falling and no one noticing, mm-hmm. people with people who are a suicide risk um, being pushed over the edge. We've seen in China that there's increases in spousal abuse, child abuse, and divorce during quarantine. Um, so in the midst of social distancing, this is sort of my third point, Christians do not abandon care, particularly care through gathering together mm-hmm. physically. To the extent it is possible and legal to do so, we should continue to gather. We should obey legal requirements. We should listen thoughtfully to legal recommendations. Um, But we should continue to gather to the extent we're able because this is necessary. There's no way to sustain social distancing for four months um, without some kind of lifeline. You won't be able to do it. You will sneak out of your house and just meet up with people and have handshakes just because you need someone. Yeah. Um, So by providing structured, safe, emotional care, specifically through church services or other church activities that can be regulated and managed through an existing authority structure of a church, we can provide ongoing social and emotional support to people uh, with a a maximum standard of safety. Um, of course, no social gathering is perfectly safe, but because churches already have established meeting places, um, established hierarchies of authority, established norms of mutual care, um, and they have the ability to police membership through strong threats of discipline, um, they are ideally suited for providing safe environments for social gathering. Yeah, and, and you, uh, I mean, because you've had a couple of pieces that have gotten pretty widely shared over this past um, I don't know, week plus, uh, the first one that I became aware of. So you wrote the one that, um, uh, I mean, uh, one I saw um, in the ERLC website. Uh, and then there was the previous one that was a Google doc, basically about um, kind of a one pager. Hey, these are, if your church is going to meet in the midst of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, you need to take these precautions and then much longer. I mean, these are pretty, um, these are, they're, a hefty amount of responsibility, care and planning on behalf of the church in order to, you know, in your, from your perspective, responsibly bring people together in this Mm -hmm. time. Um, I mean, so what does that look like? You know, as we're going to, we're kind of right now, everyone's sort of spreading apart, but we're, like you said, we're going to have to come back together at some point. So what does that look like? Gathering you have, whether it's at the church, whether it's friends coming over for dinner, anywhere you are, do I have an arm's reach? I don't. Um, I have a handy dandy infrared thermometer. Um, every single person's temperature needs to be taken. And ideally you should record it somewhere. 
because mm -hmm. if there's an outbreak, this will help the CDC trace when did people start to show symptoms. Um, you should record the name and temperature of every single person that you are having a gathering with. Um, so name, date, time, and temperature is important. Uh, after that, um, and symptom checking, and I should say there's, there is asymptomatic transmission, but the vast majority of people are not getting sick from asymptomatic carriers. The vast majority of people are getting sick because someone coughed. Symptoms are the major way. So tracking symptoms will not eliminate spread, but it does reduce it. And reducing spread is good enough. All we have to do is get the basic reproduction rate below one, and it will eventually die out on its own. That's, that's the what they, they're, they're calling the R naught, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, get that below that's one. Yep. Yeah. Get that below one, and eventually it will die out. The farther below one we get it, the faster it dies out. Um, but get it below one, and it will eventually naturally die out. So if we can reduce half of transmission by by simply locking symptomatic people all out of all engagement, um, then you know, given that the R naught is estimated right now somewhere between one point five and four, we've already got it right there, close to close to one or below it. Um, and if then beyond that, you can reduce the R net further by by having hand sanitizer or hand washing every time you go through a doorway, um, which is just a nice handy dandy rule. Anytime you go through a door, wash your hands. Um, and if beyond that, we can also reduce the odds that someone who's unaware symptomatic, that is they're symptomatic, but they don't realize it by putting a mask on them to catch their cough. Um, and if beyond that, we can also uh, reduce the odds of transmission by having every household maintain six feet between them whenever they do gather. Um, and if beyond that, we can also reduce transmission um, by cutting, you know, 90% of social gatherings out of our society, then the risk of transmission at church becomes quite low. Um, that is, uh, you know, we had local transmission in our neighborhood. Our church continued to meet. We've had zero cases in our church. Um, uh, COVID is a manageable threat. It's not like measles. The, the basic reproduction rate for measles is like 16. Each okay. person infects 16 people. COVID is like between one and four. It's, 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 it's not great. It's higher than flu and that's scary, but like it is manageable. Um, if all of society commits to managing it, it's not good enough for 60% of society to manage it. You need 100% of society to commit because a small cluster can, can keep the disease alive until other people come out of hiding. So you need 100% of people to reduce 95% of their transmission risk. If you do that, you can beat it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and everyone's now it's like, wash your hands and cover your cough, you know, which uh, this seems like, you know, this is always general good, like hygiene advice, but you know, now we're taking it seriously. It, I mean, what do you like? I wonder what percentage of risk mitigation, like, how how effective is that? Are those the two most effective things that you can do? If most people are getting it by coughing, or basically, are they, is it inhaling like someone's respiratory drops or something like that? There's there's a couple different ways we can look at this. Um, uh, social distancing measures and hygiene measures imposed in Liberia, um, Guinea, and Sierra Leone during the Ebola outbreak, um, and those measures were 
good for what they could do. But again, we're talking about countries that don't have good sanitation, where, where tight family gatherings are an essential part of the culture. But even there, social distancing measures reduced the basic reproduction rate of Ebola from about 3.5 to about 1.5 um, in the space of a few weeks um, after they were implemented. When SARS broke out in Hong Kong, social distancing measures far less dramatic than what we have now reduced the basic reproduction rate of SARS from about 3 to about 0 0.4. Um, uh, those are the two cases I know off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, but the evidence suggests that social distancing works. There's one other fun example, the city of Ferrara in Italy in the 1600s, there was a bubonic plague outbreak in Italy. Um, Ferrara, of course, they don't have hand sanitizer. They don't have soap. What they did is they made it that you could only enter or leave the city through two doors. They checked everyone for any symptoms. Um, and if they had any symptoms, and they also restricted who could come. And if they had any symptoms, they were quarantined. And they set up a monastery outside of town with several thousand hospital beds to put people for care. Um, and any house or location that was frequented by quarantine people, they had basically a, an herbal concoction that modern research has shown probably did have some antimicrobial traits that they'd scrub down the whole house with. Um, during the plague epidemic in the 1600s, um, uh, oh, and they would also, any goods entering the city, they would repackage into new barrels at like a provisional dock that they set up. Um, uh, during this epidemic, other cities in Italy lost anywhere from 5 to 75% of their population to the plague. Massive amounts of death. Ferrara had zero deaths. So, wow. they had two cases, but they didn't cause any spread. They quarantined the people effectively. Which is to say, 400 years ago, at least one city was good enough at social distancing that they were able to, to completely prevent the spread of the bubonic plague in their city. So, you know what? It works. Social distancing works. What about uh, I would like to do during this thing, like uh, I think it's, is it Clement the Sixth who sat near a roaring fire during the whole Black Plague? <laughs> that's, that's my technique. I just want to have someone light a giant bonfire <laughs> and I sit there and that way it's, you know, it's social distancing, of course, because no one can come up to you while you're sitting near a roaring fire. But also all the germs are just, you know, they're just burnt up in the fire. So I'm, <laughs> do you recommend that? No, I don't. I don't really have any. Dang it! That's my. That was Plan A. Come on. Actually, one of the best things, lifestyle-wise, that you can do um, is if you have a yard. Um, I do. Try to sit in your yard a lot in the sun. Um, UV radiation uh, does not sanitize you rapidly, but UV radiation does degrade germs in through prolonged exposure. Um, so like drying your clothes in the, in direct sunlight is a good thing. Um, uh, sitting outside in direct sunlight is good. Also, you know, sunlight is good for your immune system. Uh, good for mental health. Yeah. Good for mental health. It's good for your immune system. UV light breaks down uh, viruses in the long run. We don't know exactly how effective it is for this particular virus, but other related coronaviruses, it has been demonstrated that UV light uh, breaks them down. So that's encouraging. Um, so, yeah, um, uh, I would say, you know, in terms of personal habit in your quarantine, a, a good thing you can do is 
don't sit inside all the time. Sit in the yard. Yeah, I have a backyard, and I have backyard chickens, so they're they're producing, like I'm getting so eggs from them. You can avoid coronavirus and instead get avian influenza. Yeah, that's right, exactly. <laughs> but that that one seemed to turn out better <laughs> than, than this one. So, um, uh, and so like what? Um, and I mean, how have the economic impacts been on Hong Kong? I, I mean, it's hard. Like obviously, when I talk about Hong Kong, I'm aware that there was massive you know, or from the what, from what we heard here in the States, massive protests preceding this um, against the mainland uh, government. And so I'm sure that was disruptive, but so I don't know. Yeah. How has it been economically? The the protest, the trade war with America and the protests combined here have already caused a, just a massive wave of business bankruptcies. Um, COVID has added to that. I mean, we've got probably half to a third of the storefronts near our house are vacant now. Mm -hmm. It's been economically devastating. Um, now, when COVID passes, a lot of that will bounce back. Um, but it's hard to know exactly what that's going to look like. Um, it is It is devastating. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know any other way to put it. Yeah, yep. I mean, that's what, you know, and I think that's what we're looking at is here is, you know, I mean, the how much of the U.S. economy is around hospitality, uh, is a service-based economy. Yeah. Now, one thing that Hong Kong has done is that they've every Hong Kong permanent resident receives a check for about $2,000 to compensate them for social distancing. Um, and I think if social distancing goes on long enough, they'll probably have to do this a second round. Um, but I think, you know, this is this is appropriate. The U.S. should probably be doing a, a similar thing that they'll, as this as coronavirus goes on, we need to just be cutting just direct checks to every American. The Yang gang is like, they're, they might not have, you know, won, won the battle, but they're going to win the war. Right. Yeah. No, but I mean, the thing is people are out of work. Yeah. What do you do? Out of work. Um, they've got bills. Um, we have, we have to, we got to keep people from, from starving, frankly. Um, Yeah. So, um, yeah. So we need to be providing direct supports for the duration. So, so what is your, like, what has your church done in order to, you know, provide, continue to be the church in the midst of, and even be the church in new ways in responding to this um, pandemic? So one thing we've done is kept meeting. Um, That is a vital thing we do. Our weekly gathering on Sundays is actually, um, we think it's pretty important. Um, And particularly it's important because it is where we receive the life-giving gifts of our God in communion. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's an important thing is we maintain that care for each other and that opportunity for Christ to care for us through his good gifts. Um, a second thing that we've done is when we meet, um, it is not only for gifts of the spirit, but also of the needs of the body. That is, if you show up at church on Sunday, our church has, um, through sharing among members and also through institutional purchases, has procured a large supply of masks, soap, and other basic commodities. So if you are running short, just come to church. Mm-hmm. Toilet you'll, paper, I hope. Yeah. You'll get a week supply. You know, we'll, okay. send you home, we'll send you home with enough to get you to next Sunday. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that is a very, that got a very widely from person to person, but I mean, that's neither here nor there in terms of toilet paper. <laughs> 
needs per per per, per household. That's That'd very be a bit, personal. Yeah, yeah, when you're like, can I? When the person reaches for the extra roll, that's very embarrassing. But what you know, it's just it's 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 just your body. No shame, people. Right. Um, no. So so I mean, you know, that's that's one thing we've done is we've made a point of keeping each other well supplied, um, uh, of checking on each other. The the church WhatsApp groups, the church messaging groups, have become very active in the last yeah. few weeks. Um. And also we're finding ways to take care of each other in other ways. So, you know, we have parent chairs set up that we're taking care of each other's kids. Um, we're, we're educating each other's kids. You know, they're out of school and their online classes are not quite the same thing. So, you know, you've got, you've got somebody in the church who know, who grew up in Sweden, who knows Swedish. So you're going to go have a Viking history lesson with her. Or you've got somebody else in the church who has some other ability to teach something. So kids are going to go over there and learn from that person. So we're like doing group, we're going, doing like church family school sort of for kids. Um, so, uh, you know, different ways to, to do these things. In fact, I think we're in, in some sense, we're rediscovering a healthier model of community. Mm-hmm. Um, that where every community gathering um, represents a costly commitment. That is everybody's taking a risk to be there. Um, and everybody's, burning through one of their limited use masks. They're using a lot of their hands. They're, you know, they're paying a price to be there and everybody who shows up, shows up ready to contribute. That is ready to help others, ready to listen to others. Um, or they show up with a genuine need. Yeah. Um, everybody says, you know what? These kids are our kids. And so we're going to take care of them. We're going to educate them. We're going to keep them sane. We're going to help the parents. Um, so you know, the church can be the church by remembering, by remembering that they held everything in common among them. Sounds like the book of Acts right there, huh? A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Amazing. It takes an epidemic to remember that we were supposed to care for each other. No, I know. And um, how uh, the, um, I mean, we have, you know, in the early 21st century uh, in, in the West, I mean, kind of our own mortality is a is has been a we've been able to keep it at bay a lot of us uh, for so long and i think when when you're talking about elderly folks not being not like going out to buy groceries i mean there's a lot of people who don't realize they're elderly uh you know like i think of my own folks they're over you know they're over 60 and they're in their upper 60s like that's an at-risk group now you know from what i've seen from the mortality statistics if you contract the disease and you're in your 80s it's what 14 percent or something like that for people in their 60s it's somewhere in the three percent i mean that's a very high um that's a high mortality rate uh uh if you catch it um you know you wouldn't want to play russian roulette with that with that particular gun and so um you know i i think about how many people i know who are in their 60s and they're and i don't think of them as old you know to think of someone becoming seriously ill of course it's not unheard of in that age group but you know like you someone I know, a pastor I know died, he was 58. Um, and it was, I mean, devastating for his family. Mm-hmm. One thing I think um, from a church perspective, one thing that I think a lot of church denominations aren't t- considering enough, they're thinking a lot about protecting their their church members, which is important. Mm-hmm. Um, but pastors on average are quite old. Also on average, they're not very healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, pastors have a lot of risk factors. And they're also in very social positions where they're exposed to a lot of risk of infection. Yeah. I think it's reasonable to think that the death rate among pastors is going to be much, much higher than among the general population and may even be higher than among others of the same age. 
Um, this being the case, I think a lot of churches, if there's widespread, if COVID gets really big, there may be some churches, denominations, I mean, that have a serious um, personnel problem. Yeah. I mean, I'm a Presbyterian, my background, and uh, I remember uh, when I, they, great, uh, Presbyterians are great at statistics and, you know, providing like demographic information about members and pastors. And this was all the way back in 2012. I think the average age of a minister was 62 years old at that point in time. Um, and I'm, and it's only increased over the course, you know, probably inched up another year, year, year and a half over the course of the past eight years. And so, yeah, that's a, a vulnerable group and the average church member um, in mainline traditions, at least, are debt way well into their 60s compared to the overall population. So, I mean, church church folks in this country are, um, yeah, I mean, they're more vulnerable populations, um, to be sure. Yep. And I mean, I think of, uh, you know, the risk of, you know, that kind of that regularly social check in that is the church. I mean, we prevented one member uh, a few years ago from dying because she wasn't at church. You know, she didn't show up for a regular ride and she wasn't answering the phone. And so, you know, the police broke down her door and found that she had fallen between sometime between she had last been at a church gathering and missed, you know, the Sunday gathering. And mm-hmm. so that literally saved her life. I mean, she was in early kidney failure at the point that they yep. found her. And so, yep. I mean, this is very that, sobering. That kind of thing is going to happen a lot in the next few weeks, which is why, again, churches should comply with the law and they should carefully heed and consider all recommendations, but they should find if there's any possible way to maintain some form of gathering together that is important for the health of the church, the health of the members of the church, and frankly, the health of wider society. We need some kind of human lifeline during an epidemic. Yes, take all necessary precautions. Take more than necessary precautions. Take extraordinary precautions. Absolutely. I agree with that 100%. Um, uh, but, you know, you're, you're going to need something. I mean, a 10-person limit is particularly egregious, actually. A limit, a limit that low, like, you can't even have a couple of families babysit together. No. It's going to be an issue. Like, a lot of people, they go to work. A lot of people are not home from work and can't be home from work. Where are their kids going to go? Um, what do you think is going to happen to them? I, I honestly don't think that a 10-person limit is, is, is functional. Right. Um, I don't even know how you, can, how you can have such a – Geneva in Switzerland has a five-person limit. I'm how like, do you do – like that's – my family like, has already – I'm maxed out. Right. In yeah. My house. It, yeah, many families you'd have to like separate the family to to avoid being a. Now these are these rules are only in public, so as long as you stay in your house, you're fine. But like, what if you need childcare? I, I yeah, and where do they come up? I mean, where what where do they come up with the number ten? Like, there's appears to be a bit of an arbitrariness, I guess. With right, some and, and the other thing is that setting person limits is arbitrary to begin with. The relevant unit of infection is not people; it's households. Mm-hmm. So what you want to know is not how many people are at an event, but how many households. So a bar that has 15 people in it that come from 15 different households may be much more of a high, maybe a much higher risk than a church with 50 people in it. Yeah. Who may only be nine or 10 households. Right. Right. So, um, 
what we should be caring about is number of households that are represented because that's the relevant unit of spread for something like COVID that's, it's not strictly airborne. It's mostly near transmission within households. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, um, so yeah, I think these, these person limits are already, I mean, it makes sense when you're setting high numbers, like a thousand or 500 or 250 or a hundred, we understand you're saying no mass gatherings, whatever. But when you start getting down to these low numbers, setting a person number really starts to be a dubious choice, even epi epidemiologically speaking. Mm -hmm. um, well, Mike, do you have any questions for Lyman while he's on the line? I just have one more question. Um, and this is, you know, broadening the discussion a little bit and making it more theological. So I'm, I'm walking a lot alongside a guy right now who's, you know, he is a non-believer. He's always been, uh, you know, very hostile towards, uh, towards religion. And I've just been, you know, it's been the long con, as they say. Uh, what do I say to him? Because, you know, why, why does God allow this? And I know I'm now I've broadened the discussion, but I'm going to take that risk. I want to hear your take on this. What does, what does Luther say? What are the, what do the theologians say about why is God allow this thing that like we all say, we can't gather, we can't hold hands, we can't hold those that we love, we can't gather together as a church, we can't comfort each other in the ways that we all know we need to be comforted. And this happens constantly on, on the planet. Why, why is this the case? What is this God? Who, how does he allow this? What, so, what say you? Luther pretty emphatically rejects the idea that epidemics are uh, moral punishment. Um, and I also would not view them as moral punishment. Um, uh, there are some Christians who will make an argument for that, but I, I don't really buy that. Um, there are others who will make not a moral punishment argument, but a moral instruction argument. That is, God's not punishing us, he's teaching us. Um, I also don't really accept that view because good teachers don't murder their students. Um, so then the question is, you know, why does God allow it? Um, if he's not sending it for punishment or instruction, why does he permit it? Um, and I would say that, um, and I may be a strange um, position here, uh, but my view on uh, the, the problem of evil um, is essentially that it is, it is a real problem. And what I mean by a real problem is it is one that does not have a resolution um, in our time. That is that God himself looks at the, this problem um, and sees it as a problem. Um, my evidence for that, I mean, of course, we can make the appeal to the statements of the cross, which is always controversial, but I'm willing to do it. Uh, that God himself confronted with the final culmination of the evil in the world asks himself why he has forsaken himself. Um, that is, there is a real problem here. But I could, we could also reach back farther to, um, to Eden itself. Um, the world as a design. The world as it is is not as it is designed. It is not in any sense reflective of God's original purpose, God's desire. We may say it is God's will, but theologically educated people understand that that word will is being used in a very flexible sense here. We don't mean it to mean purpose, desire, or intention. We mean it to mean something like cognition 
or awareness even um that god uh, god is cognizant of these things he is accepting of these eventualities um so uh um we could almost say a, a better term in more medical for epidemics would almost be like a sequelae of of his actions not so much a will but uh that is my view of the problem of evil is that as as much as we abhor these things and ask why god allows them god abhors them even more and asks why humans continue to allow them to occur um why do you continue to allow governments like the communist government of China to exist that hides these kinds of things and intentionally endangers their people and arrests the doctors who are trying to raise the warning. God has established our vocations in this earth. He has called people to be doctors, to be policemen, to be government officials. Why do you continue to allow these things to occur, human humanity? Did, I not, did he not empower you to deal with them? Now, COVID is not a natural disaster, right? Having a, having a disease arise is a natural disaster, but we've had the ability to defeat these. As I said, even before modern medicine, Ferrara defeated the bubonic plague. These are human choices um, uh, in most cases. Um, now, when we talk about something like an earthquake or a volcano, this is different. These are truly... Uh, Natural evils, as they used to call them, you know. Right, natural evils. Um, and in this case, again, I would appeal to Eden. I would say the world is not as God desires it to be. Um, the world the world itself is broken. In Adam's fall, so fell we all. So fell it all. Um, we brought death in, and creation itself becomes an agent of death. Um, God abhors this. Um, and the proof of this, the final proof of God's abhorrence of this, is that he is bringing a new heaven and a new earth. He promises vengeance for those who oppress. He promises wrath for those who are the, the instruments of these things. And he promises the healing of those who have been afflicted in the restoration um, of the, 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 the truly natural order of the world, the original natural order of the world. Or not so much restoration, but redemption. That is, when we feel that horror at these things, and particularly at, at things we perceive to be injustices, we should understand that we are not in that moment experiencing doubt or revulsion at God's action. We are in fact experiencing a godlike emotion. That this revulsion is is a spark of which God's justice and wrath is the flame. So yes, feel that. You should hate these things. And why does God allow it? Well, God has empowered people. He has sent people to fix it. And also he has promised that, yes, in this intermediate period, not everything will be fixed, but in the end, he is coming back. He is going to fix it. And when he fixes it, it will be good to be on his side of the fixing. It will be good to be the one who is fixed, not the one who is, uh, well, I don't know, um, not fixed. Yeah, and um, uh, I mean, to your point about the human agency behind the spread of disease, so obviously, you know, a, a virus, you know, a, passes, it transmits from an animal to a person and it's new and that is, uh, you know, 
uh, I mean, there is human agency even in that, even in our proximity to all that sort of stuff and what we can learn and we can change perhaps, you know, perhaps how that happens. But, you know, the Chinese government, from what I understand is if they had heeded these warnings initially, um, you know, we might not be talking about that at all, you know? Yep. It'd be a flash in the pan. And so um, it's an amazing, uh, I'm going a bit for a farther afield here now, but sort of it's been a, uh, talking about making a lemonade out of lemons, you know, the Chinese seem to have turned this into a like propaganda coup about their hyper competence in the face of an overwhelming plague, you know, that's been unleashed upon the earth uh, compared to the feckless West uh, when, you know, it's their own basically uh, irresponsibility um, and repressive tendencies that unleash this, you know, fire upon the, exactly. uh, upon the earth. Exactly. This is the plague that Xi Jinping made. Mm hmm. So, uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I, I don't people cannot forget that. And we looked at We can look to China for, you know, responses. Uh, but other West, other Western. Yeah, we can learn from them. But again, I, I think even and their data, there's always questions of how much do we trust that? I mean, you know, it almost seems like you well, have to people, look at- people are all like, oh, China's doing so much to fight this because they sent like an airplane full of supplies to Italy. Two weeks ago, the U.S. Congress authorized $1.3 billion in financial aid for epidemic fighting in less developed countries. Mm -hmm. That's more than an airplane load of supplies. Everyone's like, oh, China's doing all these things to help people. We just dropped $1.3 billion on helping other people, and the media didn't care. Right? Because what's going on is a Chinese propaganda operation. They want people to forget that they did this. The Communist Party of China did this. This was their choice. And they should never be allowed to forget that. Yeah. And uh, I, my beef with China uh, goes, it goes back to the beginning. I mean, a long time, but the beginning of this NBA season, like they have, this is all, this is a little light, but they ruined the entire NBA this year. Like they <laughs> robbed me of my enjoyment of this league because their response to Daryl Morey making one tweet was insane. And then they revealed all of our, uh, you know, sports uh, elites as, um, you know, backboneless, you know, uh, Steve Kerr uh, equivocating over, you know, and talking that you need to take a Chinese history course uh, mm-hmm. in order to say uh, pu- putting people in uh, internment camps or I guess concentration camps, that's probably a more accurate term, uh, is bad, um, you know. Right. Over the last year, we've learned that China is governed by petulant children who cannot handle anyone tweeting anything about them, will freak out if they do, and will try to cover up their mistakes for as long as possible. And even after they make mistakes, instead of taking, instead of acknowledging their error, we'll try to blame it on other people using absurd conspiracy theories. And then we'll try to do little garnishing things afterwards and say, well, yeah, I might've broken mommy and daddy's really expensive sentimental vase or whatever, but see, I made a drawing. (laughs) all right i we've gone far afield but uh i i i think it's your point of human agent like there is human agency within the spread of this pandemic it's well and and i should say since break human agency and china here i want to be careful this was a disease in that was it was spread due to negligence of the communist party of china and the first victims of that institution are not Americans dying of this disease. They are Chinese people who are as any nationality in the world full of, of honest, hardworking, 
decent people who deserve better. Um, that is, we should be clear that this, is, this disease is the fault of the leadership of China, but not of the people of China who really have no say in their leadership. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. These are, yeah, these are human, you know, these are, the people are not the people who govern them. Um, you know, absolutely not. And that is a distinction that needs, uh, needs to be made. And, and often as the distinction that we make, we feel the burden to make in a post-Holocaust world when we're reading the New Testament and talking about Jesus, Jesus's condemnation of the Jews um, <laughs> as not Jewish people per se, but of the, you know, right. Jewish elites and religious authorities of that day. We, 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 that distinction holds. So, well, shoot, Lyman, thank you for being so generous with your time. My pleasure. Um, Mike? Yeah, this, thank you so much. This was, uh, this is very instructive. We, you know, we're, we're in a silo mentality right now. We're, we're burrowed in. We don't know what's going on. As, as much as we have all this information, um, a lot of it is confusing. And so thank you for clarifying. And uh, it was very, very helpful and really appreciate your time to do this. Not a problem. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so all much. Right. All right. Well, uh, you know, it's, what is it like 1130 your time? 1030? 1030. All right. 1030. Well, uh, yeah, I just appreciate you staying up late for us. So, um, 10 to your child and congratulations. Uh, Yeah. I have a two month old. This is not late for me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, oh, I remember those days, you know, (laughs) get as much sleep as you can. Thank you so much again. Much. Bye. All right. So bye. Bye. Lyman.